I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, Poem Talk has gone again on the road to New York City, where we are recording in the Hudson Park Library branch of the New York Public Library in Greenwich Village, where librarians have been serving the entire public without any discrimination since 1906, and where Marianne Moore worked as a library assistant from 1921 to 1925. And I'm joined here for this special Poem Talk by a live audience who will make themselves known because I'll ask them momentarily to give it up for each of my three special Poem Talk talkers as I introduce them, and here they are. Kaplan Harris. <laughs> Kaplan, who recently completed a stint as Fulbright Visiting Research Chair in Transnational Studies in Canada and whose publications include the crucially important, I added crucially because it is, crucially important edition of the Selected Letters of Robert Creeley, co-edited with Rod Smith and Peter Baker, and whose many other publications include an introduction to Black Mountain Poetry, an essay on editing after Pound, and pieces entitled Avant-Garde Interrupted, A New Narrative After AIDS, and the small press traffic school of dissimulation, new narrative, new sentence, new left. Give it up again for Kaplan Harris, please. And Kathleen Wagner, the Rangoon-born, Baltimore-raised, Tennessee and Iowa-educated poet whose books of poems include Miss America, Macular Hole, My New Job, Nervous Device, and at least a dozen chapbooks whose anthology edited with Rebecca Wolf is called Not For Mothers, Only Contemporary Poems, on child getting and child rearing and among whose prose writings is I am a poet and I have an essay on academic labor and poetry. Please audience say hi to Kathy. <laughs> and Maria Damon who has recently moved to this very city after many years in Minnesota having joined Pratt Institute as chair of the humanities and media studies department a poet exhibiting text and textile artist and a significant contributor to the digital poetics movement, author of books including Post-Literary America, From Bagel Shop Jazz to Micro Poetries, Poetry and Cultural Studies, a reader co-authored with Ira Livingston and Dark End of the Street Margins in American Vanguard Poetry. And now let's hear it for Maria Damon. Hello to the three of you. Thank you so much for doing this, Kaplan. You're, you could probably be far off in snow country, maybe. If It was great to take the train into town. Thanks for inviting us. And Kathy, you're sometimes in Ohio and sometimes in New York, it seems. Mostly Ohio, but I so love coming to New York. Great. Well, glad we gave you an excuse to do that. And Maria, great to see you. Likewise. So we're here today to talk about two poems Kathy Acker inserted into the middle of her novel Blood and Guts in High School. These are poems written by Janie Smith, the by this point 12 or 13 year old central character of the story. Those listening to this who own copies of the book will find our two poems on pages 103 and 105. And they are first, The Diseased, and second, The Slave Trader or Two Slave Trader. The novel was published in 1978, and on November 13th of that year, Acker read with Lorenzo Thomas at the Ear Inn as part of the Segway series. She performed our two poems, plus excerpts from Janie's Persian poems, as well as several other pieces. We'll hear the disease first, 
and we're going to include the recording of Acker's introduction, in which she does a better job, of course, than I could ever do, setting up the context for the intrusion of these poems into the prose novelistic text, and then we'll listen to The Slave Trader. So the next voice you'll hear is the amazing Kathy Acker at the Ear Inn in 1978. Lorenzo read some translations, so I thought I'd read some translations. Uh, I didn't write these translations. They were written by this 12-year-old girl named Jamie Smith. And uh, she was, when she wrote these translations, uh, she had run away from high school and uh, to the East Village, and these two guys had come into her apartment and sort of taken her away uh, and locked her up in this room. She was being trained to be a whore, locked up in this room, like around Sutton Place, I think it was. And she had nothing to do in this room, you know? Uh, and one day she found some paper and some pencils, so she uh, started to write. And she, these are what she wrote. Um, but she didn't know how to write poetry. Uh, she was real dumb and she was only 12 years old. So all that was in her mind, that's all she could write. She just wrote kind of what she had been forced to do as a, when she was a student back in high school, that is, translate this Latin guy named Propertius. So she just, she remembered bits of the translation, so she wrote them down and called them poetry. Uh, but she, at this point in her life, like this, there was this Persian slave trader, this white slave trader, and he was training her to be a whore. And she, you know, she, you know, she went through a lot of different things about him, like feelings. And she decided at this point she was in love with him. So she, these are love poems to the Persian slave trader. Uh, also, if you're sitting way in the back, why don't you come in front? Because I like to see who the hell I'm abusing. Uh, it's nice, you know, my famous stripper. This poem's called The Diseased. I want all of you out there to shut up. I'm going to live the ways we want to live. What do you want of me now, liver, blood, gut? The only thing left is madness. You two are going to drive yourself to the pits. You're going to walk on coals through blazing fires. You're going to drink down the world's most painful poisons. Because that's what wanting love is. My man, he isn't like other men. He can keep you in prison. He can make you do anything. I know why all of you want him. But worse, what happens if my slave trader, for some stupid reason, happens to like you? Then you're screwed. No more sleep. Nor will he let you keep your eyes. No compulsions alone can fetter courses wildness. How many times a spineless being you'll run to all the weaky friends you formerly despised? Tremulous sorrow will arise with tears shuddering. Warts and pimples and fleas will appear on your skin. All your wishes will go. Words are no more. You'll never again know who you are. You'll learn to serve him more. To be whatever he wants. To disappear whenever he wants you to go. You'll learn why people who want, want to die. Why the whole world are lies. Your rich parents ain't helping. His love's more powerful than social climate. But even if small, you have given footsteps of your failure. How quickly from such a reputation you'll become a murmur. Not I then, I will be able to comfort to hear to you asking you. 
who's on sick too, at this point sicker than you. My disease is forever. I know no comfort. Since we're both maniacs, let's be nice to each other. I, myself, want to live. I want to burn. All I ask is no one loves me in return. And this poem's called The Slave Trader. At this point, she had to make up something. She had to make up that he was responding to her love poetry, so she made up that he was going to run away from her because he had another girlfriend. And she's begging him not to run away to England. Are you really crazy? Doesn't you, my love, mean anything to? Do you think I'm more icy, more frigid, Illyria? To you so valuable, whoever she is, does that girl seem that without me, controlled by the winds to go, you want? You hear, can the raging of oceans under bridges, brave, on hard cold floor, how to sleep, you can know? You, delicate and scared, survive chills and frosts? You can not need to the slightest snow? Let winter be double the length of solstice. Let be dead because of late the sailors, Pleiades. Let know your from the Tyrian be free ropes muck. Let not unfriendly my throwaway winds please. But let there be no double winter dead winds. If you, on a speeding, carry away the wave ship. From me, prisoned on this empty and allow shore, you horror with clenched, threatened wrist. But whatever happens, happens, whatever I horror you owe. I hope Galatia brings you love. May he sail by Tyranian cliffs by oar, felicitous. Let in Orokos with calmness. Me, no one will take away from you. But I, life, in front of your house, bitter pus will keep screaming. And not I may fail every sailor to ask passing by. Tell me in what port in prison my boy is. And I will cry, it's possible on a tration he set down shores. Or it's impossible in Halea, he my future is. So why does Kathy Acker, when she introduces her part of the reading at the ear end, why does she say this is written by Janie, these are written by a girl, no doubt confusing the audience? Why do you suppose she just kept to that fiction? Because this is the era um, when challenges to authorship are being mounted in, at least in academia and also in, uh, in, in sort of high-end popular culture. Um, and so she's disavowing authorship. And also I think this thing about the 12-year-oldness the of Janie, um, Janie is really a mashup, and the novel is a mashup. And in specific sense, in the Burroughs sense. Yes. It's a cut-up, it's a kinds of different, All kinds of different genres. And I think, and the poem is a mashup. I mean, it's almost like a literal translation because the words don't appear in English syntactical order. Into um, Slave Trader in the second of the two, certainly. Yeah. 
Um, but I think also Acker is like she's inviting us to wonder if she herself is a mashup. So we have to at least briefly talk about what Propertius is doing there, the extent to which the two poems we've chosen are or are not even free translations. These are real translations of Propertius. They're, they're translations of Propertius 1-5, the Love Elegies 1-5 and 1-8, and, 1, 8, and they're, um, they're, they're really actually quite literal translations, so literal that she preserves the word order in some places, and that's why they sound so strange. She changes them a lot. She flips the genders. She says earlier on that translation is a... Um, is a crying out, that when you're in pain, you cry out. She says this right before the um, Persian translations that precede this Latin translation section. And um, I was thinking about how she twists everything to be about Janie. Nothing is just going to be, um, you know, flat. It's always going to be bringing through this creepy Janie scenario, this creepy Janie fiction. Can we talk about the Scarlet Letter? Oh, this is so fun. Um, Janie writes a book report and it is absolutely brilliant because it is a perfect uh, summary of the text, but it's also written in the style of, you know, the sort of monosyllabic, resentful, crude, young girl. But here she writes uh, on page 96, teach me a new language, dimwit. She refers to Dimsdale as dimwit, a language that means something to me. And to me, that, that impulse to want to recreate language in the context of eros and the taboo, you know, the, the underworld, is something that Acker really dedicated her life to with these translations, with the learning Persian, these sort of clumsy... It's like the whole thing about punk is that you do brilliantly ambitious things very stupidly, and there's an amazing effect, and this is the effect she achieves through this, you know, Hester Prynne was a girl who liked to fuck a lot. And she turns Hester into Janie and Janie into Hester. Absolutely. And the Hester's effect of that. Hester's locked up in a, a, by a slave trader, just like Janie is. Yeah. So she personalizes everything. Can we look at that, even though it's extra textual because our poems are elsewhere in this book? Can we look at that passage you referred to? It's page 96 of almost every text of this book Teach Me a New Language, colon. On the left side, we have rock and roll is rock and roll. On the right side, we have rock and roll is rock and roll. This is kind of a weird translation, right? The night is red, the night is red, the streets are deserted, the streets are deserted. I think she's in a way saying, I'm not going to do an N plus 7 translation, I'm not going to do a dictionary translation, I'm not even going to do the Persian start from scratch Steinian babble talk translation, which she does later in the book, I'm going to do what might be called N plus 0. I'm going to, this is going to be a new language that actually doesn't translate. Kaplan, what do you think? Yeah, she's doing like a, a like a Sex Pistols translation of the Scarlet Letter. Um, to when you know when she writes this essay, um, it's very. I mean, it, it's just it's just so resistant to any kind of authority. Um, uh, I, I was I was thinking how this is the same period in the uh, in the seventies when people are starting to look at recover uh, captivity narratives. Um, like Susan Howe is is I guess probably gearing up at this point for a very different reading of like the Puritans and. Um, and she's and and Acker seems to be uh, just uh, like more of like a situationist, just taking it and and twisting it in some way that it just makes it just completely wrongheaded. Um, uh, about the genre of the captivity narrative, can we say specifically what are some of the elements of it? This would be the 19th century American slave narrative, but it 
gets all kinds of uses. What are some elements of it? Or I mean, I'll start with one. If women who are white women who are captured by Native Americans. Yes. And you know, and that's Susan Howe is very interested in right. that. Uh, one element is the the young captive is isolated and discovers a pencil and begins to write. And through this is, of course, what happened with Frederick Douglass, most famously, finds the pencil, begins to write, and discovers that teaching oneself to read and write is the way north, is the way to liberty. And that's what happens to Janie in the room. When the Persian slave trader puts her in a room, she finds a pencil, begins to write, and the writing gets inserted into this book and is the beginning of her freedom. Yeah, but listen to this, what she's, when she's writing on page 108, I can scrawl and I can crawl. I, 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 I. And, and there's like, I wish that there was a reason to believe this letter, point, a little arrow pointing at the I. Mm. And it's, I, to me, it's the a sort of a Lacanian. Absolutely. Yeah. She's writing herself mm -hmm. into being, but it's, right. it's a fragmented self. Any right. other elements of the genre that need to be said here? Kaplan. It's usually a female character who's at the center of the captivity narrative, and part of the plot is she's supposed to maintain like fidelity or or purity in some way. Um, which and it seems like the Janie Smith character completely is is transgressing that. Um. But she's also playing out another very typical female narrative, which is the Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, where yeah. you just fall like the Patty Hearst narrative, right? Yeah. Where you fall in love with your captors. Kathy Ecker says somewhere that the kicker in Blood and Guts is that Janie's taking pleasure. Janie owns her own Stockholm syndrome. Right. Even though her body's in captivity, she's her mind is free via the writing that Al's talking about. Mm -hmm. But that reading is misinformed if it doesn't take into account the trauma of her childhood, which is incest at the hands of her father, Johnny. Slash boyfriend, slash, slash boyfriend. Slash boyfriend. So she, says, she says in the, um, the Hester part that we just referred to, um, I have certain characteristics from childhood traumas. That's another element of the captivity narrative. It's often, a, there's often a trauma of earlier that comes back. And uh, so she's talking about, uh, she's reversing the Oedipal uh, scheme I mean, Acker is by creating Janie in this way. And she's got trauma and captivity and loving your captor. Yeah. But Hester and Janie are allegorical bases of our own understanding of girls' trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. So that it's real yeah, so in that sense that it's yeah, been characterized. It doesn't need to be, oh, Janie is a, is a little girl whose father raped her in order for there to be a primal trauma. Um, it can be just growing up middle class, upper middle class female in in a stifling patriarchy. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it's not it's not just the incidents, but she's trying to draw attention to like a structure of patriarchy. Exactly. There. Right. Yeah. Janie says after the after the Propertius poems, when she's in, in her own poems in that section, she talks about how um, she, she basically says, you know, Janie is everybody. There's a part where she says, you know, I'm a slave. What does it mean to be a slave? Or what does it mean to exist? It means um, body slavery, which is slave to your material needs, needing to get money, and then being a mind slave, which is being a slave to culture, more yeah. or less. Yeah. So uh, that yeah. everybody counts that way. Everybody's in the in the room that the slave trader. Yeah, and that first po that first poem she reads, she says to the audience, you know, you're sick, I'm sick, you know, we're both maniacs. Let's get together. And I'm I'm, I'm sicker than you, but we should, you know, kind of understand that we're both suffering. Are you really crazy? Doesn't you, my love, mean anything to? 
Do you think a more icy, more frigid Illyria? To you so valuable, whoever she is, does that girl seem that without me controlled by the winds to go, you want? You here can the raging of oceans under bridges, brave, on hard cold floor, had a sleep you can know? You, delicate and scared, survive chills and frosts? You can not need the slightest snow? Let winter be double the length of solstice. Let be dead cause of late the sailors, Pleiades. Let no your from the Tyrian be freed ropes muck. Let not unfriendly my throwaway winds please. So let's talk about why poetry appears in this book of fictional prose. What's the disruption? What's so important about this interruption, generic and otherwise, stylistic and otherwise? One thing is that the, that the trope of slavery as a lyric, as a trope of lyric, is such a big deal. You know, it's just men being enslaved to women who, in fact, are less powerful than they are, is just throughout the history of the lyric. And so she's, she's flipping that over and, um, and, and you, doing a kind of power flip as she's doing, as in, it's an inversion. Um, that both asserts her own power as an author to, to, to make that change, but also to um, make visible the abjection. Mm. I do want to say something else about the, um, the, these translations, which is that Bernadette Mayer was also doing, who was a, a very learned Latin scholar, went to Catholic girls' school, et cetera, very classical education up to a point, um, and there and may was in the East Village at the yes, time, probably. And, and so it's a, it's a it's not a historical antecedent, but it's a contemporaneous kind of a thing where these two very um, uh, very strong women poets are translating classical male poetry for their own reasons, and they're very different. You know, one is sort of boho village, the other is very punk riot girl. Um, but in both cases, they're you know, there, it's a very sassy use of intertext. To be sure, when she was asked about her influences, the first one she would say would be Burroughs, Definitely. who was mm -hmm. outside the Academy, although, yes. you know, But he was the first of the beats to be taken up by the Academy. Indeed. Then she said Kerouac, and she said, I love to read Kerouac, but she said he's not as theoretically interesting as Burroughs, which of course is true. Uh, and then when somebody asked her once, um, what hasn't been noticed about your work? She said, I'll use the word experimentalism. Now, of course, her work is experimental, and anybody reading this book would think so, but what I think she's saying is, I'm in that poetry tradition, and you might not realize it. Maria, you want to talk about the drawings, I think. Um, on page 63, there's a picture of a naked, headless woman bound here and at the ankles, and the caption is, Ode to a Grecian Urn. There you go. We've got there it a is. little literary history going on there. Um, but Do you also want to spell it out? That lyric as a container of shame and abjection and exploitation and constraint and, you know, um, and I think I just have to mention Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick, who wrote a gorgeous essay in the 80s about lyric poetry and the sort of domestic scene of spanking as a kind of poetic myth of origin for her. There's this disciplining that happens that has these sort of uh, SM erotic overtones 
that I think are really encapsulated in the kind of, po and not, not necessarily in the kind of poetry that Janie's writing, but just in her claim that this is poetry. So Keatsian uh, complete beauty, wholeness, and bodily objectification becomes horrible or horror or some kind of weird turn on, one of those things. Um, and it's quite a smart critique. Yeah, I think um, I think we've counted off about five different genres so far that appear in this book, um, and I think that's where she goes a little further than um, the like just the cut up technique that you think of with Burroughs. So characters are cut up, text is cut up, but it's also just all kinds of genres are cut up in this. Um, the essay, the drawings, fairy the tale, book report, yeah, map, a, a map of map. dreams, cartography, um, you a know. sort of hymn at the very end. Yeah, or folk song or whatever, doo-wop song. Yeah, yeah. There is narrative disruption all the way through. Yeah, I was going to say. And different genres all the way through. It's not as if there's a plot, and at a certain point in the plot, this interruption starts happening or this breakdown. You really can't read this as, as a 19th century novel. You really can't go in expecting it to, to have coherence and... And, uh, and, and that at a certain point in the diegetic, in, in, the, in the plot line, there's going to be an obvious reason why the breakdown starts, because the breakdown is throughout. She's yeah. forcing you to acknowledge it all the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that actually bears out your point, that trauma is cultural and endemic and systemic, and not, you know, it's not an aberration in a, a, a putatively normal life. So. Yeah, and her, Janie's social climbing, such as it is, briefly, is about leaving the father who found a girlfriend and is replacing you, so we go to Connecticut to a fancy girl's school, briefly. That could be called the only experience of social climbing she gets. She doesn't last very long, but love's more powerful than social climbing. Your rich parents aren't helping, I mean, ain't helping. It's kind of like four or five waves of rebellion past <laughs> Dylan in 61, claiming that, you know, the parents were beyond the parents' control and that we're more interested in love than in, uh, in social climbing. I'd like to invite each of us to look at one or the other of the poems and to pick a line or two or a phrase just to talk about the language of it, which we haven't really done. Maria, you found one? Second line, I'm going to live the ways we want to live. You find the glitch or the thing that doesn't work and you start working with it. And here, what I would work with is the I transitioning into the we and the way to the ways, and what is this saying about mm -hmm. identity and subverting the, the sort of lyric I. So who's um, the we? I guess she's um, the diseased. I guess it would be the, the sort of tribe of underworld rebels. So this is the punk community. Yeah. Right. The enslaved who embrace their right. objection and find power somewhere in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she said, despite the fact that there's trauma in here, I'm kind of undoing my interest in trauma in this book, but she said in interviews that despite the filthy living conditions and the poverty, either um, voluntary or imposed by social values, the people in the East Village were not unhappy, at least not more unhappy than rich people, she said. There's a way in which we, we stands for a rebellion that is both against the Oedipal frame and the Grecian urn looking, of the tradition that's been handed down to her as a writer, uh, and of capitalism. So the we becomes a kind of re rebel's we, maybe. Um, but then what do you want of me now? So you is who? I want all 
of you out there to shut up. I'm going to live the ways we want to live. What do you want of me now? Who's you? Kaplan? The, just as she's blown up the eye, I think the you is everybody from the slave trader that she's writing these to, but uh, it's also us reading it in the book, reading it on a page right now or listening to it. Um, it's, it's the audience there uh, at the ear in. Uh, it's definitely that the, the audience had to, when they were told to move to the front row and she says, you, 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 you know, they're feeling interpolated. I'm sure they're kind of leaning back in their seats. Um, you know, it's a, it's a declaration yeah. of solidarity with the other woman. And, it, and it's not, um, I'm going to come after you, but look how miserable I am. Do you really want to do this too? I mean, it's a very smart twist on a sort of romantic triangulation. I want all of you out there to shut up. I'm going to live the ways we want to live. What do you want of me now, live with blood's gut? The only thing left is madness. You two are going to drive yourself to the pits. You're going to walk on coals through blazing fires. You're going to drink down the world's most painful poisons. Because that's what wanting love is. My man. He isn't like other men. He can keep you in prison. He can make you do anything. I know why all of you want him. But worse, what happens if my slave trader, for some stupid reason, happens to like you? Then you're screwed. No more sleep. Nor will he let you keep your eyes. No compulsions alone can fetter courses wildness. How many times a spineless being you'll run to all the weaky friends you formerly despised? Tremulous sorrow will arise with tears shuddering. Warts and pimples and fleas will appear on your skin. All your wishes will go. Words are no more. You'll never again know who you are. What we should do is go around everybody gets one last point because we could go on for a long time about Kathy Acker in this book. So I invite each of you to say one thing that didn't get said uh, that you wanted to put in the record here. And Maria, since you teach this book, you've probably got 15 points you could make, but how about one more? I'll just make one which came out of listening to the recording, which is that I find it fascinating that she was reading with Lorenzo Thomas because these are two writers who have now been sort of interpolated into very different canons and never the twain shall meet. So looking at this as an exercise in canon formation, and also I would say that the cover of this book, which is a drawing by Sue Coe. Um, this is presumably the first edition. Yeah, this one. is the first edition. And that book, which has an portrait of Kathy Acker on it. With, a, also, with an obvious split yeah, in the image. Yeah, yeah. The sort of, I mean, when you get an author's picture on the front of a book, you know that canonization has taken place. And so I think it's really interesting to watch, um, you know, to, to see. I, 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 at first I was thinking, wow, whoever organized that reading was very wild. And then I thought, no, that's the way it, it is sense. when a scene is happening. It's only later... 
uh, retroactively that there's some kind of uh, turf war. Such a great point. That is such a great point about the history of modern and contemporary poetics because you have to go back. Kaplan, we're all, we all do this. This is one of our methodologies because the only evidence left that that segue reading was the two of them, that's the evidence we have that the two are together. And when we segment the recordings, unless Kathy mentions Lorenzo, we even lose it there. So thank you for making that point. Kaplan Harris, final point. Um, yeah, I was I was fascinated that you chose these two texts um, that are called translations, and I was um, imagining in my head an anthology of of eccentric, non-standard translations. Um, and on the one side, you might have somebody like Zukovsky. Okay, it's it's a book to be edited one day for sure. Uh, On the one side, you would have like the homophonic translations of somebody like Zukovsky. Um, uh, And on the other side, though, you would have these kind of translations, which would go from like Jack Spicer's uh, After Lorca text, where he's inserting himself into the work. uh, And then afterward, you know, then you know, Acker would also um, be, I think, grouped or aligned with um, some writers that were friends of hers associated with New Narrative, and they did uh, translation as well. Um, Bruce Boone and Robert Gluck did a work called La Fontaine, which um, includes some, uh, you know, standard translations of La Fontaine, but then suddenly they'll just like break and go to the movies or something or talk about who they've been dating lately. Thank you. Kathy, final word. There's a really strange thing in recent poetry history, very recent, where um, a guy who called himself Janie Smith was called out by a group of Oakland poets as a serial rapist. This is a really freaky thing where a person's taking on the name of someone who situate, who's situated by Acker as, a, as an abjected person who's finding through pleasure some kind of agency or ownership in that abjection, and then is labeling labeling themselves as that person while putting other people in a a physically abjected position. So I'm, I'm very, I don't know exactly what to think about this. I mean, one way you could take it is that the liberal feminists were right. And this is all coming, you know, that the, that the, The uh, this is all coming true, but, but because Acker, um, but that would get it all wrong because that physical abjection isn't at all what what abjects Janie? It's much lar- The abjection is much larger than that, and her and her freedom is mental. That was amazing and scary. Um, my final word has to do with the Persian poems. So Acker tells us that her own first poems are the so-called Persian poems. Of course, she picks Persian because the guy who's dominating her is a Persian slave trader, and so she needs to teach herself a new language. And then she literally says, in a way, to Hawthorne. I'm not sure that this weird, unplaceable 19th century romance is really the new language you thought it was. I think we should, I should actually learn a new language, and then she does. And it just, here's a couple of lines of it. Janie's night, the red night, night world. Janie stinks. Janie is in a room. The room is small. Culture stinks. Books and great men and the fine arts, beautiful women, means indefiniteness. A beautiful woman, a red night, a deserted street, a beautiful woman, and so forth. Let's assume that what she's doing is learning translations. There's a kind of Steinian, 
back to basics, learning a new language. There's a combination of literally learning a new language and a kind of modernism here that's getting her to clear the air linguistically and to start over. And, and I don't mean to push that the book starts over and this is where the beginning of the disruption, but I think this is the beginning of at least her decision that she can both love this guy who's captive, captivating her and also ready to leave him. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And Kaplan Harris has grabbed a book and is ready to gather paradise. Go ahead, you're on. I will go with uh, Jennifer Scaptoni's Killing the Moonlight, um, Modernism in Venice. It is just out, I think, in the last two or three months. Um, it is a study uh, that tries to locate modernism, not, not, in, not in the usual way, you know, when we talk about narratives of modernism as Paris or London or, you know, Berlin or something like that. But uh, uh, she looks specifically at Venice. Um, I, I am so jealous of this book. It's so well, the sentences are beautiful um, and smart and, and there's so many citations. It's multilingual. Uh, it's a case study in how to look at just one, one location, one geographic place. Um, that I think lots of people will follow. And finally, I'll just say that in a day and age when um, uh, you know university presses are uh, making shorter books because of budget cuts, uh, this is a monster huge book. So I highly recommend reading it. So. Fantastic. So it's Killing the Moonlight. And the author is Jennifer Scapatone. And it's, there's uh, two P's and two T's in there. And anybody can Google her and find out. Maria Damon, Gather Some Paradise. Oh, I've got two. Uh, one I brought with me. It's The Devastation by Melissa Buzio. It's just out from Nightboat Books. This is one of the first, you know, it's like, uh, and it is a, just a beautiful meditation on devastating loss in the kind of, and trauma, if you, you'd be interested, Al, um, uh, a kind of fiction of uh, creatures being uh, living underwater at the bottom of the ocean, but all the all the water has been emptied out, and the water is language, so people are without language, and they're trying to help each other by scraping the dirt off each other. And the other one is by Christine Wertheim, and it's called Mutter Babel. It's out from uh, Counterpath, and it is a, a very brilliant exploration in a kind of stripped down, very similar to the Persian poems, Mother Babel is like mother father of um, the emergent subject, uh, and so it's a it's a perversion of um, the kind of mother child bond in a very sophisticated way that I can't paraphrase here. Thank you, Maria. Kathy oh, Wagner, wow. uh, gather some paradise. Um, I think Kathy Acker is so brings in so many media and genre into her books, and I thought I would plug Maria's textile poems that she makes. They do this thing where they embed the, um, you, you can really tell that language has context and that you can't do without its physicality. Um, it also refers to um, the, a, a kind of domestic and feminine tradition of working and making and incorporates, insists on that being incorporated into, into what poetry is. Uh, I also want to recommend Karina Kopp's new book, which should be out by the time this airs, called The Green Ray. And this thing is hot. It's going to be like a comet scorching across the sky. C-O-P-P. Great. Thank you. I've got a, a Maria Damon recommendation as well, which follows from Kathy's. I'm holding in my hands my copy of Meshwords, M-E-S-H, 
W-A-R-D-S, published in 2011 by Ducey Collective. And I'm also going to suggest that people uh, go to your favorite search engine and type in Desiring Visual Texts, a collage of embroidery dialogue, which is a conversation between Maria Damon and Rachel Blau DuPlessis in Jacket 2, published in March 2013. And um, I'm going to pick up a suggestion that was in that conversation which is that there should be a gallery show of this work if there hasn't been already. I want to put that out there. And the, and the second thing I want to recommend is um, a few blocks from here, uh, not quite in the East Village, it's sort of somewhere between West and East at NYU, we'll say West, at the Fales Library Special Collections. Uh, Marvin Taylor has for many years been the uh, uh, director and curator of the collection there. And the downtown collection is what it's called. You walk in to Fales, uh, which is in the middle of Bops, B-O-B-S-T, you go into Bops, go to Fails, ask to look in the downtown collection, and you'll see there's some Acker materials there. Uh, it's basically, uh, it's mostly about fiction, but there's also some poetry. Highly recommend it. Well, that's all the loving that's more powerful than social climbing we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Kathy Wagner, Kaplan Harris, and Maria Damon, and to our engineer who came all the way from Philadelphia to help us today, Zach Cardiner. Let's hear it for Zach. And to our editor, Amaris Kachansky, and once again, thank you to our live audience here at the Hudson Park Library in Greenwich Village, and we four will applaud you now, but we hope you will applaud yourselves too so everybody can hear. Thank you for coming. And thanks to Alexandra Kelly and Miranda Murray, the library staff here. Next time on Poem Talk, Billy Joe Harris, Herman Beavers, and Tsitsi Jaji will join me back at our Wexler studio at the Kelly Writers House in Philly to talk about Nathaniel Mackey's poem, Day After Day of the Dead. Day After Day of the Dead, quite a poem. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us again for that or another Poem Talk. <laughs>